take your copy of the scriptures and turn with me to Luke chapter 3. And uh, I <clears throat> did a couple things that I wouldn't probably normally do. One is I took this gigantic Bible with me. Normally, I like having my thin one. However, the text is bigger on this one, so I'm already at the point where I need bigger fonts, so that's, that's exciting. Uh, the, the second thing is the text before us today is just one of those super scintillating ones. It's, it's when I ask people what's their favorite verses, they tend to come to Luke 23 through 38 with all the genealogies and all those names. I'm well aware of that. So... Uh, so two things that I decided to do. One is I decided to print this text on three sheets of paper in which I separated each line so that I don't get mixed up as I read through each of these names. And the second thing I did was I practiced like mad reading these names, knowing that I was going to have to read them in front of you and, frankly, all of the world on inter in Internet land. So Luke chapter 3... Beginning at verse 23, I will attempt to read the genealogies of Jesus Christ. And we'll read all the way down through the end of the chapter. Luke writes these words, Now Jesus himself began his ministry at about 30 years of age, being as was supposed the son of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janna, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathiah, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Maath, the son of Mattathiah, the son of Semei, the son of Joseph, the son of Judah, the son of Joannes, the son of Resa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adai, the son of Kosam, the son of Elmodam, the son of Ur, the son of Jose, the son of Eliezer, the son of Jorim, the son of Mathat, the son of of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonan, the son of Eliakim, the son of Maleah, the son of Menan, the son of Matatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salmon, the son of Nashon, the son of Aminadab, the son of Ram, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serug, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, 
the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Let's pray together. Lord, we read your word, and every time, no matter what is in it, we find things for us to learn. We find things that challenge our thinking. We find things that bolster our faith. And even as we look at this genealogy, as easy as it is for us to just skip over them, I thank you that you have included these in your word, because in them we find life, we find teachings that help us, And so I pray, Lord, that even this morning as we look to your word, that you would help us to find our faith bolstered and encouraged, and most importantly, that your name would be magnified to the glory and praise of our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Now, don't ask me to read that again, because I'm not going to. Probably most of us would say that when we get to our Bible reading, frankly, the genealogies is where we fall off, especially if you're going to be reading the Bible through a year. You know, you're going great through the book of Genesis. Yeah, there's a couple genealogies in there, a couple bumps there, but hey, it's mostly stories. Then you get to Exodus, and you have some exciting stories in the first half of the book, and then the second half of the book, you get to some, some crazier descriptions of things that maybe not exactly your most favorite thing to read, but hey, it's still easier reading than until you get to some of the other books, such as Numbers or Leviticus, where there's a whole lot of names that are written that most of us can't pronounce, and most of us have no idea who any of those people are, and we wonder, what is the point? So those who read through the Bible in a year tend to get a little bogged down when they finally get to those books. And it's understandable. I don't think most of us necessarily get, as one of my professors said, a devotional buzz out of reading the genealogies of any of the books of the Bible. And I think Luke's genealogy in some ways is no different, but I think in other ways it is slightly different than the others. Luke has just gone through some glorious stories, some narratives about things like a woman who was a virgin conceiving and bearing a child, an old man and an old woman who are well past their childbearing years, given a promise by God that they would have a child. Angels in the sky proclaiming glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. Jesus interacting with his parents at 12 years old. John the Baptist baptizing Jesus Christ, and the heavens being ripped open, and the Spirit of God descending upon Christ like the form of a dove, and, and the voice saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. If you had started your book with such a great, just very interesting stories, why would you interrupt the flow to give a list of so-and-so, the son of so-and-so, the son of so-and-so, the son of so-and-so, and so on and so forth? Most of us probably, if we were writing a story, would not do that. Usually, you save your boring stuff, if you will, for the beginning of the book at the very least, or maybe at a point that's not quite after such grand stories like we saw in the first two and a half chapters. But Luke doesn't do that. 
Luke, just after he talks about the baptism of Jesus, of the heavens being rendered open, a voice saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, says, all right, now, let me tell you all about the genealogy and lineage of this person. And the question that any of us should be asking when we get to Luke 3 is, can I skip this passage to go to chapter 4? It should not be that. It should be, why does Luke do that here? Why does Luke include a lineage of who Jesus is? In fact, the interesting thing about Matthew's gospel is he actually starts out with it. He gets the boring stuff out of the way first and then goes into the birth narrative of Jesus, talking about the magi, talking about the slaughter of the innocents, the, the, the fact that Jesus was led into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. He starts with the quote-unquote boring stuff first and then gets to the interesting stuff. But Luke doesn't do that. And why does he do that? That's the question that we want to answer today. Because it could be easy for us to just skip all of these names and say, all right, let's go to chapter 4, where we finally get back to the good stuff again. That would be very natural for us. But Luke is a historian, and like any historian, he does his homework. And one of the things he does with this homework is he shows us another angle of the identity of who Jesus is. In verses 21 and 22, he shows us that Jesus is the Son of God. Clearly, everyone knew, even though the voice from heaven is not identified by name, everyone who read this book knew that Luke understood that voice to be God. Anybody reading that knew that voice is God, and if that voice says, this is my beloved son, in you I am well pleased, they know that this is a proclamation, a divine proclamation of God as to the identity of Jesus. And I tried to argue last Sunday that what Luke was saying is that Jesus is the Son of God, and more to the point, Jesus is God. So why does Luke then talk about a whole bunch of humans in his lineage? And more intriguingly, why does he not conclude the lineage in verse 38 with just the son of Adam? Why does he go all the way back and say that Adam was the Son of God? These are the questions that we have to answer, and I believe they are answered for us in two ways. There's really two points if, I, if you're taking notes, and if you got an outline, I'm not sure if you did or not, but if you got an outline, you'll see that there's two main points about who Jesus is, because what we're doing here is we're identifying Jesus and the first thing that Luke wants us, I think, to see with these genealogies is that Jesus is the Son of Man. You say, wait a second, you just said in verses 21 and 22, he's the Son of God. Yes, he is. But every single person, all the way, to, all the way until the last father in verse 38, is a man. And Luke is wrestling with Theophilus with this question that so much of the early church just had to wrestle through at the very beginning and outset of the Christian uh, religion, and that was this. Basically, how do you get God to be a man too? How can God be man, or how could it be, rightly be said that a man could also be God? They were wrestling through all of this. So here, Luke has said, Jesus is God, verses 21 through 22. Now let me show you how I could demonstrate to you he actually is a human as well. Because in Luke's day, in Theophilus' day, there were some people who basically could not come to the conclusion that Jesus could have been a human being. 
They were like, yeah, we agree with you, Luke. Jesus is God, but he couldn't have been human because God cannot take on human form. So one of the ancient heresies that the church had to deal with was a heresy that suggested that Jesus Christ appeared to be a human, but he actually wasn't. He was fully and truly God, but he just looked like a human. In the same way that those visitors, you'll remember those visitors who visited Abraham all the way back in the book of Genesis. There were three men who came to visit him, and one of them is described as the angel of Yahweh, the angel of the Lord. If that angel of the Lord is to be God incarnate or a manifestation of who God is, these people said Jesus had to have been doing the same thing then. Jesus essentially took on an appearance of a human because God can do whatever he wants. He could take on the, the form of an animal. He could, or he could, excuse me, he could take the looks of the form of an animal. He could take the looks of the form of a human being. He could do whatever he wants. So Jesus wasn't truly a man. He just looked like a man, a human, but he really wasn't. And Theophilus, I am convinced, was wrestling with all of these different things that people were saying to try explain who Jesus was. And Luke looks at Theophilus and he says, all right, verses 21 and 22, he is God. There's no question about that. In fact, all of the previous two chapters before this, we've been demonstrating he's God. But Theophilus, don't listen to those people who say he's not a man. And let me show you how I know for a fact he is a man. He lists 77 human pe- beings here in this genealogy. And he begins with these names that, frankly, most of us are probably uh, familiar with as far as Joseph goes. And then in the, towards the second half of it, you get some names such as uh, Noah, Shem, Canaan, you have David, Obed, Jesse, Boaz. You have some names that are familiar. But 36 of these names in this list are completely unfamiliar. In fact, they're actually not found anywhere else. You don't know, we don't know anything about those people. But many of the names in this list are found in Genesis 5 and 1 Chronicles 1 through 3. I will not go back there and read those to prove it to you. You can go back and read it and try to pronounce the names for yourself. But suffice it to say, Many of these names are traced all the way back to Genesis 5 and 1 Chronicles 1 through 3. Like I said, 36 of these names, we don't know anything about them. Now, I don't know how many of you have ever done like a a lineage or ancestry thing. Uh, If you've ever done that, you probably recognize that a lot of the names in your ancestry, you just don't know, right? I remember when I was a kid, my I'm not sure if it was my grandparents or one of my aunts and uncles on my dad's side of the family they did one of those genealogy, like family tree things, and it was showing our lineage for, if I remember correctly, several hundred years. Most of those names, I didn't know anything. I, in fact, on my dad's side, I can go back as far as my, my great-grandpa Hakala. That's as far as I could go, my great-grandpa. I don't know who his dad was or who that dad was. I don't know. I don't know those names. Which goes to show you that the lineage here of Jesus is much like ours. I guarantee you, as well as you may know your lineage, and some of you in this room probably know your family history way better than I know my family history, but you still can only go so far. You don't know all of your family history. 
There are people in your lineage you just, you probably won't know of, and if you saw their name, you'd see it and say, okay, wow, that's interesting. I don't know anything about that person. Jesus' lineage is no different. 36 of these names are unknown characters. And some of us might be bothered by that because we think, well, this is Jesus. We should know every single person in that list. We should have an identity and understand the history and story behind each one of those people. But the reality is, is God, as grand and great as a creator as he is, still uses the natural realm and normal means to accomplish his purposes. That's called his providence. He works in normal circumstances to still accomplish his will. And the normal circumstances of everyday human life is we don't know all of our history. We don't know all of our lineage. The same here could be said of Jesus. One question, though, that has plagued the Christian church for the last 2,000 years, and particularly in the last 200 years, by the people who wish to discount the Scriptures, is why does Luke's genealogy of Jesus differ significantly from the genealogy of Matthew? If you were to go to Matthew 1, which we aren't going to go and read that one, if you were to go there, you would notice that there are some significant differences in those two genealogies. People who wish to discount the Bible, who wish to discount Christianity, or wish to to show that the Bible cannot be an inerrant, inspired book from God, have pointed to such contradictions or mistakes to prove, in their point, that the Bible could not be a supernatural book. It has to be a normal book, and we have to account for human errors because humans wrote it. So the easy way we can explain the differences in Luke's genealogy and Matthew's is it's just human error, you know? I mean, I guarantee you, some of these people might say, I guarantee you that if you were to look at some genealogies and compare genealogies for, from one person to, to another person, or let's say you went to this website, got a genealogy there, went to another website, got a genealogy there, they may not exactly match either. That's just human error. It's okay. Well, that's not okay when it comes to us when we say that this is the inspired Word of God without error, that it is authored by God himself. Yes, he used humans to write the words, but he is the ultimate author of Scripture. We cannot just say, well, God made a mistake. There has to be an explanation. And I'm not going to get into all of the details, but I will give you one illustration of a difference, it seems like, or a discrepancy, supposedly, between Matthew and Luke. And it's in the very first name. In Luke 23... Jesus himself began his ministry at about 30 years of age, being, as was supposed, the son of Joseph, the son of Heli. All right. So before I get to the son of Heli aspect, you'll notice there that Luke says it was supposed that Jesus was the son of Joseph. Why does he make that comment? Because he's literally just said, Joseph's not the dad. Mary was overshadowed by the power of the Holy Spirit, and what ended up happening is Jesus is miraculously formed in the womb of Mary. Joseph is not the biological father of the human Jesus Christ. So people, when they saw Mary and Joseph and Jesus walking down the street, they assumed, they supposed, Joseph is the dad of this boy, and we wouldn't think any different. Every person in this room, a a husband and wife who have children sitting with them, or you brought children to church, none of us assumed, wow, I bet that that was a miraculous birth and that that man there had nothing to do with that. No, 
We think through the normal process, as God has ordered His creation to work, that a husband and a wife who get married will have children together. It's the process of the two of them. When people saw Joseph and Mary, they assumed Jesus was Joseph's son. But he wasn't, biologically. So Luke makes this comment, Jesus was, as was supposed by the people around him, the son of Joseph. Now here's where it gets interesting. We are, de- we are described here f- by Luke for us that Joseph is the son of Heli. However, if you were to go to Matthew chapter, we aren't going to turn there, but if you were to go to Matthew chapter 1 and verse 16, you would read in Matthew's genealogy that Matthew says Joseph was the son of Jacob. The liberals who wish to take apart the Scriptures and to to strip them of any of their supernatural power or anything that's related to the miraculous have looked at that and said there's a contradiction. In fact, many people who claim they cannot be a Christian because of the uh, contradictions in the Bible, this is an example they might give. It says Joseph was the son of Heli in one spot, but it says Joseph was the son of Jacob in another. How do I explain that? And there have been various ways that scholars have explained this. I will give you one of them. I don't want to get bogged down with all the details, so I'll give you one. And to me, this one is very compelling. So what would happen in ancient Jewish culture, uh, one of the important things was lineage. Um, So a lot of times in the Jewish scriptures, you'll see that lineages are happening in the Old Testament. You'll see that lineages are given, genealogies are given for Jesus Christ. And then you'll see Paul make the comment, don't be focusing on all these endless genealogies and endless strifes and things like that. Why is that? Because for Jewish people, lineage and genealogy was important. So when a man had all daughters, what did he do? Because as far as his genealogy goes, in a sense, he's kind of done. He doesn't have anyone, any son, to pass along his inheritance to, to pass along his name to. What does he do? A man who only had daughters and did not have sons would often, in Jewish culture and custom, adopt his son-in-law. So if his daughter got married, he had no sons, he would adopt his son-in-law as his son so that that son would gain the inheritance of that father. One of the things that could possibly be happening here is that Mary's dad didn't have any sons. In which case, it could be very possible, and in my opinion, highly probable, that Mary's dad didn't have a son, and so he adopted Joseph, his son-in-law, as his son to pass along his inheritance and heir. Why is this possible? Well, one, because we already know that Joseph was of the house and lineage of David. Luke's already established that. So we know that he's in the line of David. But this would also mean that Mary as well was part of the house and lineage of David in a distant way. In fact, that explains one of the differences between from David all the way up to Jesus' time. That explains why there's such a grand difference between Matthew's genealogy and Luke's. Matthew shows Joseph's genealogy, the royal lineage. Luke shows Mary's genealogy the other more common side of the genealogy, even though it still goes back to David. 
So what I think is happening in verse 23, this is my opinion, it cannot be confirmed by any historical documents, but neither can it be denied by any historical documents. My belief is that Joseph married his wife Mary, but her father, Heli, had no sons, in which case Joseph was adopted by Heli and included, therefore, in that lineage. Yes, Joseph and Mary are distant cousins. They're kissing cousins, as we might say. But Joseph is the adopted son of Heli, which, may, which means that Matthew's genealogy, where he says Joseph was the son of Jacob, he's actually talking about Joseph's biological father, Jacob. You see what, see what I'm saying there? There is one example of the differences in the genealogies and how you might explain it. We could go through every single one of these names or these, these differences in the genealogy. I don't want to bog you down, but I wanted to give you an example of how you could explain to somebody who tries to say, hey, the Bible's full of contradictions, and there's the first one right there in that genealogy. There is an explanation you could give to them for the differences between Matthew and Luke in their genealogy of Jesus Christ. So, Jesus is the Son of Man. Each of these people listed in this verse is a human being. And some of the most notable names are the ones that we would think are very important, including, verse 31, the son of David. Matthew and Luke both say that Jesus is in the house and lineage of David. Jesus is part of the royal line. There is nothing about Jesus' ancestry that would question or, or cause any concern for anyone to think that he was not part of the house of David. But why is that important? Because one of the promises God gave to, to David was that he would have a son who would reign on his throne forever. And he, of course, had a son, Solomon, who ended up reigning on his throne, and that son would build the temple, and that son would be rich and incredibly wise, endowed with wisdom by God. But there was a future son of David who was coming, who would reign on the throne of David forever. And for Luke and Matthew, who give these genealogies, as well as any other Jewish person who knew the great covenant that God gave to David, knew that whoever the Messiah was, this son, he would be part of the lineage of David. And I think that is intriguing as well, because one point I didn't put in your notes, but one point that we could make, is that these genealogies are not filled with perfect people. David, as great of a man as he was, a man after God's own heart, was a, a liar, an adulterer, a murderer? He wasn't a perfect man. And neither was Judah. Certainly neither was Adam, the one who fell in the garden. Not, nobody in this list is perfect. And yet, the perfect Messiah, the righteous one, came through this line. I think that this shows us several things about Jesus as the Son of Man. I think it shows us that as the Son of Man, He can identify with our weaknesses. He identifies with our weaknesses. If we need a faithful high priest who can understand us, 
He can, of all people, understand that. He sees the weakness of the people in his own genealogy. He was in all points tempted like we are, yet without sin. Jesus is the Son of Man whose genealogy is filled with imperfect people he came to redeem. But Jesus also is the Son of God. That's point number two for you. And very quickly, what happens in verse 38, we could go through all these names, but I'm not going to. We're going to go jump down to verse 38. Where Luke does not end with the son of Adam, the last person he could possibly go to as a human being. Luke, if he wanted to just demonstrate that Jesus is the human being, the human son of man, he could have said the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam. And then started chapter 4 with Jesus being filled with the Holy Spirit and returning from Jordan was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. He could have, but he didn't. And that's just tantalizing. One of the most intriguing verses to me in all of the Bible is that verse, verse 38. Because Adam is described as the Son of God. I thought that designation was only for Jesus. Why is Adam given the designation the Son of God? I think ultimately... What Luke is trying to show us is that you could look at all of the human genealogy here. You could look at these names that are very difficult to pronounce. Some of them we know nothing about. Some of them we know a great deal about because their lives are recorded in the Old Testament. But ultimately, this genealogy was providentially constructed and very carefully planned and ordained by Almighty God that Adam did not beget himself. Adam was created by God. And Adam was created by God to enjoy an eternal fellowship with him. But what did Adam do? He messed it up. And he messed it up royally. And the rest of his genealogy is the story of person after person corrupted by sin. But this genealogy is not a mistake. Jesus truly is the Son of Man, yes. But he was before Adam. John describes that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. God existed in eternity past. He just is. When Moses says, who shall I say sent me to you to to speak to Pharaoh? What should I say? God says, you tell him, I am who I am. I have always existed. I have no beginning. I'll have no end. I am the first and the last. I'm the Alpha and Omega. That before Adam was God. God created Adam and from there brought about this genealogy that led ultimately to the Messiah, Jesus Christ. So Luke continues beyond Adam to the Creator, and he demonstrates here that the God-man Jesus was not an afterthought in the plan of the triune God. All of, this was cre- all, all of this was planned by God from the beginning that he would redeem people and he would do so through ordinary means. Every single person here in this list is a normal human being with hopes and with fears and dreams and failures 
and joys, they are like us. They're normal humans. But God took those experiences, those people, and brought about in his providence the ultimate culmination of his plan to redeem humanity, and that was to send Jesus Christ at the fullness of time. So this genealogy goes back not to the son of Adam, but to God. And I want to close with this one final point. I almost did this as our scripture reading, but I didn't. And we, we won't turn there because, because of time. But if you were to go to 1 Corinthians 15, you would see that there is a description of the first Adam, the one who is described here by Luke as the son of God. And that first Adam dwelt in a perfect garden. That first Adam had a good relationship with his creator, who was given a wife who was to be suitable as a companion and helper for him, failed in his test of obedience to God. Which meant there was a requirement of a last Adam. One who also would be described as the Son of God. Who would not come into a perfect garden, but would be driven, as we'll see next time in chapter 4, into a wilderness. Who would not be surrounded by tree after tree and forest after forest filled with wonderful fruit to eat but would be in the wilderness, in the desert, who had been hungry and had not drunk or eaten for 40 days. The first Adam was tested and failed. But the last Adam, also described as the Son of God, would succeed where the first one failed. And so I believe that when Luke describes Adam as the son of God, I think he's drawing us and showing us a parallel here. That the first Adam was created by God and he messed it up. But the last Adam was sent by God and he would fulfill all that was necessary to redeem sinners. Which brings me to the question, have you embraced that last Adam, the son of God? He came to redeem sinners. And each of us in this room could be like Paul and say, I'm the chiefest. I'm the worst sinner there is. We need to be redeemed. And the only way to be redeemed is by embracing Jesus Christ by faith. You have to acknowledge that God is holy. You have to acknowledge that you're not. You have to acknowledge that Jesus Christ lived the perfect, righteous life in spite of his genealogy being filled with vile sinners that he completely fulfilled the law of God, that he was in obedience to the Father, the one who proclaimed at his baptism, in you I am well pleased. That Jesus, the Son of God, came to redeem Adam, the Son of God, and all of his descendants. If you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that Jesus is Lord, and as Paul says, that if you confess with your mouth that he is Lord and believe in your heart, God has raised him from the dead for your justification. The promise and assurance is this. You will be saved. 
if you want to find forgiveness for your sins, if you want to find joy and everlasting bliss in the presence of God, the only way is through Jesus Christ. And my last exhortation is to those of us who read a genealogy as a Christian, I think here that perhaps we may not get a devotional buzz out of it. It's not necessarily one that we're going to read over and over. It's not going to be somebody's life verse necessarily. But it is, I think, something that bolsters our faith because Luke shows us Jesus is not myth. There is historicity to his genealogy. Jesus is not unacquainted with our sorrows. He is he came into earth and his genealogy is filled with sinners and he dwelt among sinners and he was tempted like as we are yet without sin. He identifies with our weakness. And because he's truly God and truly man, he is a faithful high priest for us. So if there's a Christian in here right now who's struggling, you have a besetting sin, you have worries and anxieties, you have pain and hurt that you're experiencing. Jesus, the Son of God, the last Adam, is our faithful high priest, and he invites us to come to him. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your souls. There could be no better shepherd, no gentler hand that you could entrust yourself to than the hand of Jesus, the Son of God. I'm going to pray now, and as I pray, I'm going to ask our men who will be helping with the Lord's table to come forward. And then after I have closed praying there, there will be some music that plays, and we'll just have a moment of quiet reflection. As we consider Jesus, the Son of God, truly man, yet truly God, who came to earth to die on the cross and rise again for our sins and for our justification so that we could be declared righteous. And then after that, we will observe together and celebrate the Lord's table. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, it is our joy to know that while we were yet in our trespasses and sins, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. Thank you for reaching down to save sinners such as myself. Thank you that though I fail you moment by moment and day by day, I can cling to Christ, the faithful high priest and the true Son of God and last Adam, who has redeemed me from the fall and made me also a child of God. Thank you for such wondrous love. I pray, Lord, that as we celebrate this Lord's table, you would fill our hearts with joy, you would fill our minds with your words, and that our hearts would overflow in praise to you, for you alone are worthy of it. We pray all of this now in the Son of God, Jesus' name, amen.